Hello, Water Talkers. Today we've got something a little bit different for you. We're featuring an episode from a new podcast about water called The Water Course. Now, The Water Course is produced by Skylar Herzog, who, of course, helped to produce this very podcast. So you know it's going to be good. The Water Course is also about water, but with a little bit more of an in-depth focus, and, and we'll get into that. So stay tuned after this episode, because we've got an exclusive interview with Skylar about why the world needs, and let me tell you, it needs the Water Course podcast, and also what you can expect from it in the future. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the Water Course. You can find that podcast wherever you found this podcast. See you after the show. Welcome to the first ever episode of The Water Course. I'm your host, Skylar Herzog. I'm a PhD hydrologist, and I study all things related to streams and water quality. Now, if you work or play in urban streams, you already know that wastewater effluent can have a dramatic impact on stream water quantity and quality. But you may not be familiar with what goes on within a sewage treatment plant. So if you need to learn the basics of sewage treatment or you want a refresher, check out the links I've posted in the episode description. My guest today is Andrew Dugan, who recently toured over 300 wastewater treatment plants across Colorado and Wyoming. So rather than talking about any particular system or the generic wastewater process, we'll focus on more of a meta-analysis of wastewater treatment showing the range of systems in the Mountain West. In this interview from September 2019, Andrew helps me to introduce the concept behind the Watercourse podcast and teaches me to see water quality from the perspective of wastewater treatment professionals. So does this podcast have a name? Is it a theme? Are you kind of still developing that? Yeah, this is The Water Course. Is the the Water Course. Yeah, I chose that name for a couple of reasons. One, I want it to be educational. So I think universities are moving more towards a flipped classroom approach where mm. you can watch a YouTube video or read an article or listen to a podcast like this one on a topic and come into the classroom and discuss it together. But there's no need to just spend time lecturing in class when you could otherwise have done that beforehand. Sure. So I want this to be a resource for um, you know educators to have and say, all right, Andrew, you're going to take this class. Go listen to this podcast on this topic. You'll get some background on it, and then we'll come into the class and discuss it. Sure. And, and being more efficient that way. Uh, rather than, it's, it's kind of a shame in a lot of ways to have people come in and then watch a PowerPoint that they could have watched any home. Sure, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Especially when you have, uh, you know, someone like like yourself. It's a lot more interesting to really go in depth with you versus having someone like you just read a PowerPoint. Yeah, just you like know. reading a textbook beforehand. Absolutely. You know? Yeah, it's a lot more engaging. Yeah. So, um, so that's what you've seen in the university setting, kind of yeah, more mo- classes moving that way. There's a movement towards that. Yeah, it's. Um, I think people recognize, you know, the part of, of the coursework that's why people come to college or why they take these courses, or even professional courses and professional development hours and stuff, it's for that face-to-face time. It's for the chance to ask questions mm-hmm. and really get deep dives into the material. So we're trying to move as much content outside the classroom as we can to free up that in-classroom time for those questions, for those discussions, and for the really um, kind of interesting you know, lab work and stuff that you can't replicate elsewhere. Cool. So... But we were just talking before we started recording about how we've both been doing a lot of long drives. Yes. And music kind of loses interest for me after a while. Yeah. And I, I love podcasting for a chance to learn more. And um, so this is, yeah, it's called The Water Course. It's for the education component, for people that are doing long drives, that are 
trying to do maybe a flipped classroom approach, but also um, intentionally generic on the term because I talk about streams and rivers and even gutters and a lot of stormwater issues. And the water course is a generic term for all those things. Sure. Whereas if I specified this is the stream podcast or the river podcast, it wouldn't really encompass the wastewater treatment that I'm doing right now. Sure, so sure. It's meant to be a kind of double entendre with education as well as a kind of all-encompassing holistic treatment of water. Well, it's so ubiquitous, right? And yeah. so to call it the water course is a cool way to be able to really talk about anything yep. as you go forward yeah. with it. I don't want to restrict myself. Yeah, there you go. So. That's smart. So you said, are you working with water and wastewater treatment right now as part of your postdoc? A little bit. Okay. Well, I kind of turned into an interview with me, too. Yeah, uh, we'll go back and forth. But, uh, yeah, so I, I do I have different projects. So I have, I have one project that's in a pristine mountain stream network. I have another one that's in a, it's a stream restoration project with a lot of stormwater. Okay. So the headwaters of this stream is a shopping mall. So it's all the stormwater coming from the big parking lot, runs right into the stream, and then it's at this interface of stream restoration and stormwater treatment. Okay. And then I also have projects that are more agricultural based. These are you know big rivers that are um, so about stream restoration again, but it comes down to ranching and agriculture. Yeah. There's also a lot of wastewater input. And I want to talk to you about that today too. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of these streams are receiving a bunch of wastewater. Mm-hmm. And so you can't think about urban waterways without thinking about wastewater. So yeah. I don't do too much. I don't really do anything really in terms of uh, the plant side of wastewater treatment, but I deal a lot with the effluent. Absolutely. As well as how kind of pharmaceuticals and some of the other organic contaminants coming out of those treatment plants, mm-hmm. what happens to them once they get into the stream? So you work a lot with effluent, and you have me here to talk a little more about the process beforehand that gives us that effluent and kind of yeah, to we, help explain, I guess to kind of make sense more of the effluent and why yeah, if, if it I'm is the way about, it is. I'm talking about what the stream is receiving, uh-huh. and you're here to talk about why it is what it is, sure. how, how we got here, so to speak. Cool. So, I actually really like this as an introduction. So, we'll just keep going with this. Yeah. But uh, so you you were an undergrad researcher here at Mines, that's Colorado School of Mines, uh, when I was doing my PhD here, mm-hmm. and so that's how I know you. And then I saw on LinkedIn that you had just completed a tour of what is it, every single wastewater plant, in, close to every wastewater in, plant in Wyoming, municipal and municipal wastewater okay. plant. So it added up to be about. 300 plus wastewater plants in the last three years. Um, a little about kind of the last three years, I came to Colorado after my REU with Mines. I uh, got accepted here, and so it was kind of a good excuse to move to Colorado. So you had a good experience with your research here? Loved it here. Obviously, I fell in love with Golden, and um, and I decided I'm, I'm coming back. So I, I finished my last year of college, moved here about a month after I graduated, and uh, started looking for jobs. And I came across Misco Water. They are a uh, what's called a manufacturer's rep. And uh, essentially what we did was we work with municipalities all across uh, Colorado and Wyoming. And so my job, my function was to go to all of those plants, which is why I got to tour 300 plus wastewater plants and find opportunities for them to plug their manufacturers into projects. So you're looking for inefficiencies, basically, in the treatment system and trying to sure. in different products that can make their lives easier and help them treat their water more effectively? That's exactly right. Okay. Yeah. So that's kind of interesting because you're going around to these different plants and looking for improvement. Mm-hmm. You know, you're trying to understand each of their individual processes yes. and where they can be better. So and everyone's different, too. Sure. 
there's a lot of different ways to treat poop water. And yeah. so uh, everyone you go to, uh, even if you have one place that's the same MGD as the other, they're doing it a completely different way, and so they have completely different needs. And MGD um, is million gallons per day. Yes. That's the amount of water they're treating. So basically how big the plant is. Exactly. And you saw a, a huge range there, right? Absolutely. So anywhere from 10,000 gallons a day to... Which is, and how many people, would you, do you know how many people approximately that is? They're that's serving? roughly, gosh, I'd say 5,000 okay. smaller so the, communities. The very small ones probably have septic and no centralized treatment at all, right? Exactly. If you're really rural, then you don't have connection to pipes at all, and you're having it hauled out to a facility somewhere okay. else. So then the minimum levels, you said... 10,000 10, gallons per okay. day is probably the smallest okay. that I've seen. And, and then, then you have a centralized treatment plant, but it's very minimal, I assume. And then you scale all the way up. What's the biggest one? Denver Metro is the largest in the region, you know, from New Mexico to Montana. Uh, and that treats about 130 MGD, and it's rated for 250. You see some systems that are like 10,000, some have up to 250 million. Mm-hmm. That's huge to me. I just want to emphasize that to the listener to understand, like, you're looking at little tiny 5,000 people to 1.5 million okay. people so, in, in industries. So that's such a huge range. What, what are the main things that jump out at you um, when it comes to uh, how the plants are built, what they're doing, and how they're doing that's a tough question. Um, a lot of them were built in different time periods, and so you see different technologies that were favored at that time, um, and then you have different engineers that also kind of have different mindsets in terms of what they like and how things should be treated, and so it's it's hard to categorize what you see because it's all so diverse. Okay. You definitely see, um, you know, like a Johannesburg kind of five part yeah maybe maybe we should do a quick review of the wastewater process I sure real minimal yeah but i, I'll I keep assume it simple. i assume everyone has you know the water comes in they have a grit screen exactly so it comes in and you have what's called a screen and that is to remove as many inorganics as possible and so that's your rags t-shirts uh whatever wipes. else flushable wipes whatever else comes through money in Boulder, they get a lot of fake IDs that get okay. flushed, and so that's what that's for. And then it'll go into a grit chamber where you remove a lot of those rocks, grit, things you don't want in the rest of your process because it beats up pumps, yeah. things of that nature. From the headworks, it goes off to a primary clarifier, typically. So they're trying to settle out um, things that settle and then skim off anything that flows like grease, right, on the top? They have skimmers on yeah. top, skimmer arms. And uh, then you have the sludge that settles to the bottom. Yep. You take that sludge, either it's returned for uh, to the aeration basin, or you take it out to be we'll skip that part. Water we'll, yeah. we'll go on. So uh, from the clarifier, it goes into the aeration basin, and that's where a lot of that's the meat of the process. The exactly, and that's where you're removing phosphorus. That's where you're removing ammonia and turning it into nitrogen gas. And then from there, it goes off into a secondary clarifier. You settle out more solids, and ideally from there, it's pretty clear. The clearer that water is, when you take it to a UV or to a chlorine to be disinfected, the better it'll get disinfected because those bacteria, you know, that E. coli, loves to hang out on those particles. And then from there, out it goes. So that's a simplified breakdown of what a wastewater we get, treatment is. We're going to take what we want to, but we're going to skip that. Perhaps. Exactly. And most of the water that's left over at that point is now disinfected and cleaned, mm -hmm. goes to the stream or the lake or the pond or whatever's receiving that water. That's exactly right. right. And that, so it's all been treated, 
but to varying levels and um, how well are these different wastewater treatment plants uh, treating that water? I know they're all doing their best, but I'm sure it's a struggle for some of them to get their funding and all that. So what's your impression of, of how, how well they're meeting that goal? Overall, I would say, except for maybe one or two that I won't name, um, everyone takes a lot of pride in the work that they do. All these operators really are proud of their effluent. They brag about it when I go and see them. They love when they have non-detects on ammonia, things of that nature. So there's so little that you don't even see it. Absolutely. Detected. Yeah, yeah it, absolutely. And everybody, almost everybody, is looking to achieve the lowest numbers that they can. Um, and they like to you know, go past their permit. I would say the permits in general do a pretty good job of keeping them uh, on track. keeping them on track and keeping their wastewater clean enough to put back into the you know the Colorado River what have you in order to keep the stream healthy and not negatively affect the fish and the recreation. Obviously, uh, the stream that you put your water into will affect your permit, and so uh, we have a few not very large plants that are over in like uh, kind of southeastern Denver. And they put, uh, their receiving water is Cherry Creek. Okay. And the limits on that are incredibly low, lower than the regulations that the state's looking to put on the rest of the state in the next five years. That's because they know Cherry Creek's sensitive, I assume? They, it's the amount it. of water that they have in it. It's how sensitive it is, exactly. Yeah, because, uh, I mean, we've done research on this, and a lot of streams in the western U.S., during the low flow season, they can be... 75 to 90% wastewater. Mm -hmm. So it's all treated wastewater, but it's such an important component to the overall stream flow that any little bit of pollution that's still left in there, within the limits, can still be a problem. That's exactly right, yeah. So I, I think it's probably safe to say that everyone is trying to do a good job, right? They're, they're doing their best to make the water as clean as possible, mm -hmm. cost-effectively, right? Yes, that's a good way to put it. And you, you go out in these really rural, small plants and they are struggling I was I assume is that fair do you think I think I would break it up in a front range versus rural because you have some decent sized plants in the mountains you know ski towns yeah uh, you places like Sterling or like La Junta that are decent sized towns but still very rural so it's really um, falls out of the economics I would imagine like I think so because Even a small plant in like Erie is it yeah Erie? that's a great it's like still well funded right? exactly because it's still in Boulder County and, Great. you know, cool. exactly. So I would say front range versus rural, uh, yeah, economics okay. versus size. I would say they, they do typically struggle, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One, like I said, was an aging workforce. You have people retiring and not enough people filling their shoes, not enough people being trained by those people. Yeah. Or if you are young and you are good at wastewater, you move to the front range where you're going to make more money. Okay. Um, and so they have a ton of trouble retaining enough talent to to do a good job. The other issue is, as you know, when the Clean Water Camp Act came out, there was all this federal money that flooded the country and put all this infrastructure in. But now it's up to those individual municipalities to keep that infrastructure up now that we're 40 years out and all of that stuff's breaking down. It was designed to be updated by now, right? It should be, yeah. It's just last 50 years. It's been 50 years. Yeah, right? exactly. Years. And there's not that renewal of federal money to keep that going, and depending on where you live is going to kind of affect how well you're going to maintain that stuff. So a lot of what you see in the East is people putting off maintenance because how do we ask the taxpayers? You know, we have only have a few people. Nobody's rich. 
off of our tap fees, how do we fund these huge, you know, infrastructure projects that, you know, and prices of things have only gone up and up and up. Yeah. Labor is incredibly expensive right now. So those rural places struggle a lot with aging infrastructure, paying to update that stuff, and then keeping the people to actually run those facilities. Okay, yeah. So it's like uh, the rich get richer almost because these big systems in the front range that have a lot of money and a lot of scale to work with, they can you know, experiment with things. They also have a lot more of the operators and the young operators that want to come try new things. One thing I've noticed... Um, a lot of the millennial operators have college degrees. Okay. One of my theories is because those guys have degrees versus in the past, that kind of gives them more say because it's like, I don't care if you're an engineer, you know, we went to school together or, hey, I run this plant and I have a degree, so actually I'm going to kind of give a little more input. And so uh, there is a dynamic that's changing in the industry in the last, I would say, decade. Probably more respect, too, for those operators given that they're the ones actually running the plant day to day, right? Yes. So they're, they're, they're close to the process and they have good ideas. and Right, and they know what they want for themselves because, you know, after that project's over, who gets to run the plant? Yeah. Whose headache is it? Exactly. Engineer moves on yeah, exactly. to the next thing. Okay. But so uh, because of that, yeah, that dichotomy has changed. Okay. And so cool. So, so they have the funding and the innovators necessary to be trying new stuff. So were, were they, in your experience, were they more likely to try uh, and try to optimize their treatment versus just trying to keep afloat, so to speak? Yeah, absolutely. So when you go to the front range, there's a lot more experimentation. Yep. Uh, we're fortunate in that we have uh, universities to work with that are always interested in doing something new, and they have the capacity to allow grad students such as yourself and others do that experimentation in order to optimize Everyone's always looking to optimize because even on the front range, rates haven't kept up with the cost of doing business. And so everyone's always trying to figure out the cheapest and most efficient way to run things. Yeah, let's, uh, let's get into that a little bit because the rates that you, utilities charge are kind of they're set in advance, right? So they can't just adjust their rates uh, to get more money to pay for updates and maintenance. Right? No, and um, Sterling's a good example. They actually had to have it get voted on by the community, and the community said no because they said, why do we want to pay more for wastewater? Yeah, it's someone else's problem, right? And it's all going down the toilet anyway. What, yeah. what, needs, to, what needs to change? Yeah, it's, a, I think, a common problem because drinking water, you know, people care a lot about, and they say, yeah, this is our problem, so to speak. Wastewater, it's kind of on the way out. It's going downstream to someone else. Mm-hmm. And in a kind of budget-strapped area in particular, mm-hmm. Um, they don't necessarily have the funding to do that. So some of these areas that might be struggling economically aren't going to be able to pay a lot of extra money for uh, maintenance, let alone upgrades or optimization, right? Absolutely. And so I think you put it well. They're kind of just trying to keep afloat and make sure things are just going. They're just trying to keep up with their permit, meet their requirements at the lowest cost, right? That's exactly right. The state of Colorado and other states, too, they have money for uh, underfunded and not privileged communities, but there's only so much to go around, and so uh, oftentimes they have to apply in order to get a new headworks, in order to get a new plant, and there's engineers and others that do a good job of applying for those funds, but if you don't have access to that, then even if you are disadvantaged, it's hard to get the funding to make it happen, which is scary because those permits, those new regulations, they're coming anyway. 
Yeah, let's talk about that. What, what kind of new regulations are there? So you're saying these plants need to be doing more than they currently are with this old infrastructure, and there's no way to even maintain that at the current levels. That is the biggest challenge that a lot of these utilities face right now across the state, probably across the country. A lot of a big, a big nutrient that they're trying to remove right now is phosphorus. Currently, depending on the stream that you discharge into, but currently in general, the limit right now is one milligram per liter, uh, if not more, and they're trying to bring it down to 0.7 in the next seven years. There's a lot of ways to skin that cat and kind of reduce that phosphorus, but it costs money. Yeah. No matter any way you look at it, there's no... All costs money. Yes. Okay. So what, have you heard from anyone, like, are they just desperate for solutions on this, or do they have any ideas? So... For the rural communities that are less than one MGD, they aren't required to remove it just because I think they don't have as much of an effect on those streams and lakes. But if you're over one MGD, you're going to be expected to meet these permits in less than 10 years. And there's a couple of ways. The technology is there. We know how to remove phosphorus. There's not much of a question mark there. But depending on how your plant operates, the amount of space you have, different solutions might fit better. Okay, so it's not a science question so much as an economics question. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So do you think, like, I know Metro's done a lot with phosphorus. Are they probably good to go? I don't know much about their plans, but I doubt they're too worried about it. Okay, so in general, you'd say, like, the larger plants, they're probably going to be okay? They have the funding, they have the tax base, and they have, um, oftentimes they have teams of engineers. Uh, They might not even need... uh, a consultant, an outside consultant, okay. to figure it out for them. Um, but it's these smaller communities that won't really know what to do or that are, won't be able to do it. Even if they know what to do, they can't necessarily afford to do that. Either can't afford it or not sure how it's going to work in their process. There's also, you know, whether you're going to go biological or a chemical phosphorus removal, that's a, a question of economics down the line, what's going to pay off in, in 20 years. You don't know how much chemical it costs in five years, sure. it, it might completely screw up your budget. Okay. And so that's something that a lot of them are struggling with, and it's created a lot of work for those consulting engineers who are helping them figure out. And that's a majority of plants. You have your metros, you have your Colorado Springs utilities, but in general you have these five, three MGD plants that are scattered across the state, and they're wondering how they're going to achieve it. Okay. And then I, it strikes me, too, that you know, phosphorus is maybe the most obvious new regulation that's coming but there's many more things that are potentially in the works. And so it's not just an issue of phosphorus, but um, pharmaceuticals, some other uh, compounds. Metals or another one. And again, these plants, they're struggling just to maintain right now. So it's going to be very, very hard as we, I think, rightfully focus on improving water quality even further. It's just, it's hard to do. The, the bottom line is, you know, even if we know how to do it scientifically, and we do for most of these processes, it's a question of, how can you afford it? So, mm-hmm. Especially when the onus is on a, a municipality, yeah. right, to come up with that money. Some, again, are more equipped for that than others. Do you see any options for these, especially rural communities, to do that? In or, terms of removing pharmaceuticals? Uh, just in general. Like, you know, in, in general, complying with future unknown regulations, um, what, have you talked to them about that? Like, what did, And if so, what did they say? It depends if that rural community is less than one MGD or not, which many of them aren't. So some of them are like, yeah, we're just going to record it. That's all the state needs from us, and okay. we'll move on. 
Let me dig in. Let me think kind of what those smaller places are planning to do. But there's a threshold size, as you said. Mm-hmm. So the smallest plants that really can't economically afford to do much likely won't be required to meet new regulations. Because that is, they are they probably can't afford it anyway, and they also are such a small amount of water that it's not worth focusing on. Sure, their effect on the stream is so minimal, it doesn't make sense to, to clamp down on okay. them. Cool. I'm also really interested in green infrastructure versus gray infrastructure, and... Uh, not that one's better than the other, but different contexts, they make different sense, and they can be really complementary at times. Okay. So, curious what you saw in terms of green infrastructure. I assume most of these um, wastewater plants are, are typically gray infrastructure. You know, it's concrete tanks and metal pipes and pumps and everything. To what extent do you see wetlands and some other green infrastructure being used? It's not especially common here, and I don't know if water rights has something to do with that, where... You know, the state of Colorado, by law, has to pass this water on. So if you have a, a hydraulic retention time of 100 days in a wetland, I don't know if that causes you to maybe not keep your end of things sure. or something like that. I can think of three wastewater plants off the top of my head in this state that go off into a wetland. Okay, so tell me about these plants that did use green infrastructure. What, how did that look? Like, what were they doing there? Two of them are a lot smaller scale, so they're able to take the wastewater, screen it out, maybe take the grid out, and then they go off into lagoons. Those okay, lagoons, so very quickly into natural treatment. Absolutely. Um, and sometimes those lagoons have uh, cattails in them, so I don't know if that counts as green infrastructure sure, yeah. or unintended green infrastructure. And you have hydraulic retention time, you have time for all that stuff to break down, and then from those lagoons, they're taken off into uh, wetlands. And you have the cattails, you know, fish, birds, and then eventually that makes its way into a body of water. Okay, and I assume they need to, by the time it leaves the wetland, this wetland is an artificial, constructed wetland, and it's designed for treatment. So they all need to have the water by the time it leaves that wetland and reaches the stream or the river or the pond, or even a natural wetland, Mm -hmm. needs to meet the requirements for water quality. Absolutely, they're testing that water every day to make sure that what they're putting out is meeting permit and not negatively affecting that waterway oh, that it's natural. Yeah. that it's eventually going to. And you said there's one bigger one too. Was that did that look similar to the smaller ones? That one's a little more gray. It's you know, you have your effluent after all that gray infrastructure and treatment. Did it go through all those classes we talked about, you know, primary Absolutely. biological, secondary clarification and then green infrastructure. The effluent was clean enough to meet permit, but as kind of a way to beautify the plants, be a good member of the community, kind of create a small park for community members in that area. It then goes through that wetland and and then out. That's a good point, too, because, yeah, a lot of these uh, wetland wastewater treatment plants are a great center for, like, bird life and mm-hmm. habitat and recreation. and They're usually uh, very pretty. Yeah, and the public often doesn't even know it's uh, wastewater. But I've seen this in Arizona, I've seen this in Oregon, I've seen this all over the place where there's a great kind of wetland complex that people love, the community loves to go to. And they do see way more bird life, especially in Arizona, you know. Sure. You have wetland species, you have have ducks and herons and geese in this kind of artificially created wetland, but they're loving it, you know, the community loves it, so it's a good place for them to go above and beyond as a utility and meet standards uh, with a kind of beautiful 
habitat um, ecosystem, but also serves recreation. And that passive treatment's free. Yeah. You know, it, which is great. I would love to see more of that green infrastructure. I'm not sure if, because there are permits, maybe some people are scared to invest in something like that because there's less control. Whereas, you know, at a plant, you can turn up the air, you can use chemicals. There's a lot more control in your effluent, and there's a lot more peace of mind because at the end of the day, there is an operator in charge, and if something goes wrong or if they don't meet permit, it falls on someone's shoulders. Um, yeah, ultimately, these, these, these utilities are regulated based on their ability to meet that regulation. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard for them to take any risks and do something that's outside of their control. It strikes me that, um, yeah, as you said, nature, natural systems tend to be inherently more variable. Uh-huh. And also, at, at higher scales, they're harder to do because you know, a small-scale system can have a one-acre wetland. Sure. But a very dense city. How would, how would Metro, yeah, the yeah, wetland yeah. would have to be massive. The size of Denver. You'd have to knock houses down. Yeah, it would be, it'd be beautiful, but there's no way. And, well, and then here, the winters. And so that wetland's going to be much less productive. Sure. There's going to be much less nutrient uptake. And so how do you depend on that in the winter when it's snowing, when it's freezing? Maybe in Arizona it's just a little more doable because it's always warm and sunny and so you can maintain that year round whereas here it's like you said more variable so who would want to put their name at risk on that if yeah if you want to depend on nature yeah well what do you think are the main questions moving forward for the industry having seen everything you've seen what jumps out at you as you know the key one or two things that they're struggling with that they need people maybe listeners of this podcast to jump in with new ideas and try new things two of the big things that jump out to me are workforce, finding people who are passionate about keeping our waterways safe, keeping the water that we drink safe, and wanting to get into this line of work. Even if it's not glamorous, even if it's not, you know, it's something that we really need, and these are jobs that typically pay really well, and we need tradesmen and and people who want to do that type of work. The second is, uh, like we said, funding. Finding ways to fund these projects. Uh, Public-private partnerships are one way that people have tried to to solve this issue, bringing in private companies and finding a way to where it helps them as well as the community so there's less of that tax burden, but you still find that funding and you're able to achieve these, these new regulations or what have you. There's pros and cons to that, but that's kind of one way people are getting creative with finding the money to achieve these goals. Okay. I guess one other thing I would add is uh, finding ways to remove pharmaceuticals from wastewater is definitely one of the big issues that are coming ahead. Yeah, probably more generically, just the ability to update plant design to meet any new regulation. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think it's not just pharmaceuticals or phosphorus, but in in general, the ability to update, um, I think it sounds like there's a funding issue needs to be resolved uh, in multiple ways moving forward. Yes. Because, uh, you know, looking for future, more in the future, you know, 30 years from now, it could be something we don't even know about that needs to be treated. So how to be good stewards of the environment with limited financial ability. And I think a lot of that comes with how do we get our communities to value these infrastructures? Uh, we, we take so much of it for granted because it has been around for at least our lifetimes and it's kind of just a given, 
but so much of the so much of this infrastructure needs help and as we do move forward and as we depend on wastewater treatment plants to uh, they can produce energy they can you know harvest phosphorus and use it for fertilizer there's so many there's so much potential out of these plants and hopefully in the future we can continue to capitalize and see value in making them uh, work for us as a community. Yeah, it's a resource, not just a nuisance to be dealt with, right? Correct. So, Andrew, I mean, you've seen so much uh, doing this tour of all these plants. Like, what's what's next for you? What do you think you want to do building on that foundation? Going forward in the near future, I'd like to apply all the experience that I've gained these past three years and go into consulting engineering and continue to work with all these wastewater plants to help them meet some of the that's exactly right problems help talking about I'm help problem again. solve with all these designs and be on the consulting end of things awesome and i want to give people a chance to contact you if they have more questions uh so what's the best way to reach you probably the best way to reach me is just by my personal email and that is uh, dugan.andrew92 at gmail. That's D-U-G-A-N dot A-N-D-R-E-W-9-2 at gmail. Well, thanks again for stopping by. It's really been fun learning about all this stuff. Well, cool. Thanks for having me. Andrew Dugan is now working as a water and wastewater design engineer. You can find his LinkedIn profile in the episode description if you want to learn more, or reach out to me on Twitter at watercoursepod and email via watercoursepodcast at gmail.com. Suggestions for future episode topics are always welcome. Otherwise, thank you for listening to the Watercourse Podcast. If you liked today's episode, please subscribe and tell a friend. If you're looking for more water podcasts, check out my colleagues over at What Are You Talking About?, And a few other good ones are Let's Talk About Water, Freshwater Talk, and Let There Be Water. Until next time, I'm your host, Skylar Herzog. Skylar, it's nice to have you on. Great job with your first episode. Thank you. Yeah, I I learned so much with What Are You Talking About that this was a good chance to uh, try to put a new twist on things. And I appreciate all all the lessons I learned the hard way with you on the other one. Yeah, for sure. So why did you decide to create the water course? The simplest answer is that I'm no longer officially part of Renew It, and so it felt a little funny to be on the Renew It podcast. Um, The other thing is, like you said, I want to do a more of an in-depth approach. I looked around, and most of the water podcasts are kind of high-level overview, and as a scientist that does this stuff every day, I often was frustrated that right when they get into the level of detail that I care about, that's when they stop and go back to another issue. I really wanted to make a podcast that can be used. Uh, it's more of a niche, uh, but for university students, for professionals and academics that are really working with this stuff day to day so that they can keep learning about these topics, given that time is limited, given there's all these chores and other things to do, but you can still be learning about so many interesting things. So I want to be interviewing uh, people and bringing a more um, deep dive educational focus um, to the podcast. Yeah, yeah. So what's going to be your general approach for producing these kinds of episodes? I guess lots of interviews? Yeah, definitely interviews. I think, and this all comes back to the kind of flipped classroom approach for teaching. 
that was really the motivator here. And I felt actually very vindicated because when I interviewed Andrew in September 2019, he was a little skeptical, you know, like, well, I don't know about this online thing. And now, of course, every university in the world is basically fully online <laughs> in the middle of this pandemic. And everyone realizes the need to have these resources that students can engage with on a deep level. And so this podcast is all about basically trying to give materials for students to have discussions. So I know, you know, it wasn't an exhaustive dive into wastewater treatment, but I hope that it um, generates a lot of discussion points that then you can go into class and have a good discussion with the students and the, and the professor and also in industry groups, you know? Yeah. Part of that is that I know my expertise is very narrow. So I really do want to be interviewing lots of people and basically empowering those speakers to come and share what they know. Why do you want to hear me talk about it when you can hear it from uh, the expert? Absolutely. And yeah, I did want to touch a little bit on what you're going to focus on for this podcast, because you have researched broadly the interface between the natural and man-made worlds as they influence streams. But what kind of topics are you going to cover in the water course? I guess it'll be more than that. Yeah, and I've, I have a very broad education. You know, I've worked in agricultural settings, in urban settings, in pristine forest settings. And it's surprising that many times the lessons or the processes are the same across all those systems. And so what looks so different on the surface is actually highly integrated. The water course is a generic term that can be about urban streams or, again, wastewater treatment and everything. So I think the vision for the first season is to talk about... Um, the modern urban water cycle. In our textbooks, and if you look online for the water cycle, you often see this image of mountains and forests, and, and maybe there's a city, maybe not. Maybe there's some farms, maybe not. But that really is not what most watersheds look like. And as an example, a lot of these urban systems, they start on the highway. That's the headwaters of the stream. And then they run into some detention basins and things like that. And then they run eventually into an urban stream and there's canals and diversions and wastewater inputs. And so I kind of want to take a deep dive into individual pieces. And so the first episode was about wastewater treatment. The next one will be Chelsea Panos, who's also from What Are You Talking About? And she's talking about stormwater from infill development. So I want to kind of build out this series about the modern urban water cycle. Yeah, that's actually a really nice segue into some of the content of this episode, because I did find some of the things you were talking about really fascinating, but it also raised some really intriguing questions for me. So, you know, we think about these big fixed infrastructure constructions, you know, things like our wastewater treatment systems, but I'd imagine those are really hard to change. So what are some ways that we can be nimble and address new challenges, given that we oftentimes have multi-million dollar, 50-year lifespan constructions to deal with? Yeah, and this is exactly the kind of question that I hope the podcast will inspire. It's not meant to be the final word on the topic. It's meant to be just the starting point for this iterative conversation. Uh, but more directly to your question, yeah, I think one of the difficult lessons that came out of that podcast is that these utilities are struggling as it is to keep up with everything. And these large capital investments to build a new clarifier or to add a whole new process are extremely expensive. And so I think we should be looking at more modular approaches that can be changed out easily or even just process-based changes. And so, for example, looking at uh, flow rates, you can open valves and, and turn on pumps to change, for example, the amount of time water spends in a certain process and try to improve the treatment. And so I think there should be a lot of focus on the process side. You can have more of the operation side uh, be flexible. 
And I also think it's important to look at which unit processes can provide the most variety of service. And so some of them are very, very specific. Some of them can do a whole range of things. And, you know, as we talk about, for example, green infrastructure at the end of pipe. So if there's a wetland, you might be getting a ton of different benefits, diverse benefits in terms of temperature modulation and pharmaceutical removal and phosphorus and nitrogen removal. So a whole broad range of treatments um, from that process. But other times there's a very specific compound of concern. You might have to have a very uh, narrow focus treatment that's specifically to address that that problem. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because a lot of the way our wastewater treatment plants have been constructed dates all the way back to the Clean Water Act. But as we learn more about these things that scientists call emerging contaminants, because we're just starting to understand their effects, that really changes what we're concerned about treating in our wastewater treatment plants, but also the role that they play, right? Because the public needs to trust that what's coming out of the treatment plant is safe. And our definition of safe changes based on whether we're concerned about removing nitrogen and phosphorus or whether we're concerned about removing pesticides and herbicides and pharmaceuticals and drugs that can be very toxic at very low levels. And so how do you see this uh, how do you see the role of these institutions changing as what we ask them to do changes? Yeah, I don't really have the answer to that question, but I think it's a very important question to ask. These plants, as you said, were built 50, 60 years ago with specific goals of removing the the BOD, the biological oxygen demand, the nutrients to some extent, and other things like that. It was a very simple process, and they, they do a good job at that. And I really feel for these utilities that are trying to do more now, but you know, none of these things we're currently talking about were on their radar at all back then. And so it's a bit unfair, I think, to expect them to be able to quickly treat them without any more funding investment and without any template of or roadmap of how to do it. They can't even be detected right now by most of these uh, utilities in their laboratories. And so it's a huge problem to try to figure out what what contaminants will be an issue, how the utilities can monitor them and eventually treat them. But I don't know that there's an easy answer, and it certainly isn't as easy as just telling the utilities to do better. Yeah, we need something more concrete than just say do better. Yeah. And, you know, that, that's a place where it's interesting because I think as scientists and researchers, we focus on trying to discover these new problems. So we need to do a good job of communicating what are the problems and what are the possible solutions to these other different kinds of scientists and engineers and, and having a dialogue with them about what's feasible given the constraints. Yeah, largely it's not a technical problem. It's a socioeconomic problem. It's about labor, it's about training, it's about money and, and funding for this stuff. It's t I mean, I was always tempted to say, oh, can I come up with a new process or a new way of treating things? But that's often not necessary. Like they are, There are ways to treat many of these contaminants. It's a matter of figuring out what's most efficient, figuring out what works well with the plant already, and uh, trying to streamline some of that more supply chain type stuff, uh, which is a broader society and governance question. Another topic I've been more interested in recently is what's called co-design or co-production of this knowledge, where you actually work uh, iteratively with those people that are on the ground. And that both 
I think is more effective scientifically and leads to better adoption of the eventual solution because the utility has been involved and feels like a stakeholder in the process. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Well, great. So uh, remind us again, Skylar, where can listeners find and subscribe to The Water Course? Wherever you got this podcast, you can go there. Uh, it's basically on all the main services. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Skylar. We're really happy to feature your first episode and hope that The Water Course does really well. We'll be back with new episodes of What Are You Talking About in a couple of weeks. Until then, stay wet, everyone.